0: This is Wally Knox. Welcome to Election Day 2022 on The Political Conversation. Probably like you, I've been following the campaigns closely. I'm, of course, a political junkie and can't wait to see what the final results will be. But in this brief comment, I don't want to attempt predictions. You and I will know the results soon enough. Rather, I want to zoom out for a moment and think about the broader political context of this particular 22 cycle, and I found myself returning to the ideas of Morris Fiorina of Stanford in his interview in this podcast. I think it'd be helpful to return to Moe's ideas to provide a context for today's results. Moe explains his ideas in simple, everyday, very clear language. He starts with straightforward questions and develops his surprising conclusions in a completely manner-of-fact manner. Here is how Mo explained his views of polarization of the American electorate. The party system is supposed to sort
1: of aggregate all of the interests and values and preferences of the population and then implement them in policy. And I don't think the party system as a whole is doing that now in terms of the country as a whole. And I, th- I think we have a political class, that's the term I use for all the candidates and office holders and activists and donors, et cetera, who are different from the public at large. The public hasn't really changed. The the The, the reason I sort of wrote the first book was simply this argument that the polarization was being driven by the electorate. And I said, no, 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 we, the electorate really hasn't changed. I've been looking at ANES data for 30, 40 years, and it hasn't changed. It's the It's the it's the leaders who have changed. It's the it's the choices that people are being given that have changed. And um, and so that's been the sort of the fundamental point I've been trying to drive home. I still have trouble getting that across. That so many people, like, take something like split ticket voting. And people say, "Well, people are more partisan; they won't split their tickets." No, they don't have any reason to split their tickets. That that it used to be the case. A lot of people would look say, "My my Democratic congressman is an anti as a pro gun guy and everything." I'm happy voting for him and for Reagan. You know, we're on the Republican side. You say, "My Republican." Make uh, sort of Whitman from New Jersey or something is a sort of a moderate Republican. I'm happy voting for both her and uh, Al Gore. And you don't have that anymore. And the example of Joe Manchin, I mean, my God, when he, he ran on the same ticket with Obama in 2016, Obama lost West Virginia by 25 points. Manchin won West Virginia by 25 points. So there's massive ticket splitting going on. And is it because West Virginians are weird? No, it's because they're about the only ones left in the country who still have the option of voting for a pro life, pro gun Democrat. And that's just the way it is. And there nobody out there anymore has the option of voting for a pro-choice, uh, pro-gun control Republican, that the parties have become so homogeneous that there's no reason to split tickets. And so, I mean, this tendency to say it put everything in the, in the head of the voter rather than the reality that the voters are facing, I think, is just a big mistake in a whole lot of political analysis.
0: After the interview, Morris pointed out to me that the election he referred to in West Virginia took place in 2012, not 2016. The trend that I also noted in the literature, and and that you may utterly disagree with me on this, but what I noticed was prior to 2010, uh, the literature on polarization was very enthusiastically arguing that the entire American electorate had polarized on policy issues. Um, and that the middle in America was vanishing. We were left or we were right and we were consistently left on issues or consistently right on issues. Um, and that led into a lot of speculation that the election of Barack Obama would herald in. I, if you recall back, if we can think back to 2010, uh, was a herald of a new era, a new realignment in American politics in which America would shift dramatically to the, to the left. 2010 came along and was an absolute disaster for the Democratic Party. Um, And one particular political scientist had the misfortune of publishing in 2010 a book with the title, The Disappearing Middle. Um, And uh, I noticed after 2010, polarization theory moved from discussing policy issues into discussing what they call affect, uh, hatred of one party member for a rival party member. And uh, that became the new definition of polarization.
1: Uh, yeah, I think most political scientists who who actually looked at the data said, yeah, it's really true that you can't really find any evidence of significant policy polarization over time. And that was one of the things, I think, that led people to look more in you know, this. But, but, but politics really is more conflictual. It really is nastier than it used to be. And I think sort of the the work on affective polarization uh, filled that gap. And I think there's something to it. I think there's just sort of um, um, it's exaggerated that. Um, you know, that basically, uh, the words that are used, like, love uh, your party and hate the other party, come on, we're talking about ratings on a thermometer scale. And so when somebody rates a party 30, they say, well, he hates that party. I'm sure there are days my wife rates me 30 degrees, but I don't think that means she hates me or she loathes me. You know, that, that there, there's just a lot of sort of uh, exaggeration here. And uh, the other thing is that there's evidence, there's some nice studies showing that, Basically, when you ask people to rate Democrats, they think of the people they see on the shout shows, and they see, and you yeah, were saying, and if you sort of give them information on, well, Democrats believe this, Republicans believe this, sort of ordinary Democrats and Republicans, that a lot of that sort of negative and positive is diminished. That uh, that so, I mean, I think, yeah, again, I think, plus there's simply the fact is, how do you separate the cognitive from the the affective? That I want to see somebody run an experiment in which they simply give people, like, say, here's a person who agrees with you on these five issues, here's a person who disagrees with you on these five, and here's a person who agrees with you on three. I'd be very surprised if affect didn't correlate strongly with with policy uh, differences. And the fact of the matter is, and the parties have polarized. That we have a polarized party system without having a polarized electorate. That's that's my general point. And so you know, basically, if you're a Republican, the Democrats disagree with you more now than they used to, and vice versa for Democrats, because the parties are so homogeneous. That it used to be the case that if you're pretty much any category, there were people in the other party who looked sort of like you. Uh, now it's just not the case. The parties are really distinct.
0: I then turned to asking Mo about his idea that we're living in an era in which political majorities are extremely unstable that when a president is elected, that president can count on, at best, two years when he can get things done. It was the obvious question to ask with Biden's presidency having very slight control of Congress. Okay, so
1: let's start at the beginning. Historically, the United States has had two big heterogeneous parties. Uh, We called them big tents, and so you had conservative Democrats, you had liberal Republicans— And this is typical in two-party systems around the world, that the the two parties are big and heterogeneous. They're called catch-all parties. Now, now we have evolved somehow into having two ideologically distinct parties. There's a liberal party and a conservative party. It's sort of like in 20th century Europe where you had the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats uh, contesting, or in Britain where you had the Tories and Labour. One consequence of this is, I think, uh, that we have smaller parties. That um, when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, uh, three-quarters of the population said they were Democrats or Republicans. Now it's only about 60%. Uh, Over 40% of the country says I'm an independent. We have two minority parties, basically, that neither one commands the loyalties of a majority of the population. Now that results in close elections. Uh, We've been having very close elections for the last two decades or so. And historically, close elections generally result in moderation that both parties will try to trim their sails to try to reach the center and win the election. That's not happening today. And the reason I've argued in other other places is that the parties have changed, that people used to go into politics uh, and give money to parties uh, for material reasons. You, know, you got a government job or you got a contract from the government. Today, the parties, since about the sort of changing in the 60s, Uh, The the party activists, the donors, are motivated by policy, they're motivated by ideology, and so they really want to accomplish things um, politically. And the result is when they win office in this era of close elections, uh, the idea is not how do we appeal to the majority to, to maintain our majority, it's rather let's strike while the iron is hot. We may very well lose the next election, so let's get while we can, uh, get get while we can. Now, the problem is that's basically a self-fulfilling strategy, that if you try to impose a minority position on the population as a whole. Um, they. Too many people leave your coalition in the next election and you lose, which is what's been happening um, basically for the last 20 years or so.
0: Just to make that clear, can you give us an example that leaps to your mind of uh, an instance of that happening?
1: I'll give you several. Uh, Start with George Bush's reelection in 2004. Uh, At his inauguration speech, he announces a freedom agenda and Social Security private accounts. And a whole lot of Americans say, I don't remember voting for any of that and they get whacked in the 2006 election. And Barack Obama comes in, and he's running a fairly moderate platform, and he says, we're going to nationalize health care. And again, this healthcare is a middling issue in the population as a whole, but it's big in the Democratic base. And again, they get whacked in 2010. Um, so and we're seeing, I think... Um, the first signs of it now is Biden runs on a very moderate platform, but is being pulled to the left by the Democratic uh, progressives. And um, basically, there's a policies out there, I think, that may very well come back to haunt them in 2022. Well, that's, that's,
0: that's one of the uh, areas I wanted to explore with you. So uh, the way you've phrased it is that uh, the party that gets a narrow majority uh, in order to make its space happy, overreaches in one or another policy area and uh, provokes a backlash from the, the middle in, in American politics. Where do you see the overreach in Biden occurring? And, and in particular, because it's pretty obvious that Joe Biden is going out of his way, in rhetoric at least, to reach as deeply as he can into the middle of the American electorate, But where do you see the missteps taking place?
1: I think um, one of the things I'm sort of sensing, there's sort of a nervousness about the size of the domestic policies he's proposing. That the economy, by all accounts, looks like it's recovering. And just slapping a huge amount of uh, additional spending on an already expanding economy is making some people nervous. Uh, Also, the tax increases that... um, It's going to be interesting to see if these suburbanites who defected because they're really tired of Trump, uh, what happens when they start looking and be worrying about their taxes going up.
0: And the response I hear from aggressives is that, well, if you're taxing the rich and you're taxing corporations, I have a poll that demonstrates that that's overwhelmingly popular with people up and down the line.
1: We'll see what it looks like in 2022.
0: I'd like to repeat Mo's big point. The parties, their elected officials, their activists, their donors, their supporters in the media, have polarized. But at the same time, the American electorate as a whole has not polarized. The result is an increasing disconnect of the parties and the people. Is that borne out by what we see among the voters? Well, on Election Day two years ago, the Gallup poll found that 38% of us said we were independents. Now, Gallup reports that 43% of us say we're independents. That's a 5% shift in two years. At the very same time, Democrats went from 31% to 24% today. 24%? Republicans are a little better today at 30%. The reality that is never admitted on Fox or on CNN is that we have two minority parties and our independents, folks who reject both parties, the biggest group by far. It's 79% larger than the Democrats and 43% larger than the Republicans. So tonight, I'll be listening to the results to see if Mo's context helps us understand what is really happening were there massive victories for one party or were there a whole slew of really close elections because the two parties loyalists balanced each other out and were the elections decided by the votes of one party's voters or were the races decided by who the independents decided to back I'd love to hear from you as the results come in. You can always reach me at wally at thepoliticalconversation.org. My thanks to Mofi Arena and once again to my producer, Anna Kumu, for her excellent work. I'll see you next time on The Political Conversation.